what? Open your Bible and tell them, Thus saith the Lord. Standing Against Spiritual Intimidation Mysticism Welcome to Air Jaren. This is Program 50 on the Book of Colossians, taught by Dr. James M. Sisi and produced by Global Radio Ministries and Jaren Ministries International. Today, Dr. Sisi begins an impassioned teaching, standing against those who intimidate through mysticism. Colossians 2 verses 18 and 19 Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. After a review of those who intimidate you through legalism, Dr. Sisi will then get into standing against those who intimidate through mysticism. Here is Dr. Sisi. Well, good morning, beloved. Welcome. Welcome to Campus Bible Church. This is our second of two morning worship services. And as always, we want to be sure to uh, welcome those that are listening uh, by radio and those that are listening online, really all over the world. And so we're just thankful for our extended congregation of people and we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, will you turn, please, to the Colossians chapter 2. Take out those study outlines that we provided for you. We're looking particularly at verses 16 through 23 in our ongoing verse-by-verse study of this amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison as he writes to his beloved believers in Colossae. We live in a world where we need to stay constantly aware. You're all familiar, of course, with the Homeland Security Advisory System. Uh, you don't really know it that way. You know it as the terrorist alert system with its five colored levels. Green meaning we have a low risk of terrorist attack. Blue that calls us to be guarded because we have a general threat to our safety. Yellow means we have an elevated threat and we're at significant risk of being attacked. Orange means we have an even higher risk. And of course, red alert means that we're at severe and imminent risk of enemy attack, it's time to duck. Today I want to talk to you about a terrorist attack that comes from a number of sources. And it's gone on for 2,000 years. And the attack is not on a nation, it's on the people of God. The Church of Jesus Christ, with its many false teachers who have attempted throughout the generations to distort the gospel of grace who have been successful, if the truth be known, in disrupting the spreading of the good news that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And sadly, I could tell you story after story, century after century, and even in our own decade, of how many have fallen to that false teaching. And yet the Word of God is clear that God would promise to raise up true believers, a remnant, if you will, who would speak against and warn us about the threats to the very foundation of the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in particular, we've come to Colossians chapter 2. We've gone verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and in some cases, word for word through this entire epistle. It, I can't even tell you how many weeks. I think it's 17 or 18 weeks so far, and we're not in a hurry I have no idea when we'll be finished. It's all right, because eventually we're going to be in some book anyways. Does it really matter? Uh, does it really matter? We're going to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, precept upon precept, 
through the Word of God, and we welcome not only you here, but many around the world to join us. And what too many churches are not doing, they're not spending time in the Word of God. But I want to warn you about three attacks, if you will, ancient threats that still exist in the modern church. Now, I have to admit that when the Apostle Paul writes his letter, he doesn't mention these by name. I'm going to go ahead and do that, and I might be wrong. I might give it a different name than he would give, but we're going to do the best we can to operationally define what I believe he meant as we look at the historical, as we look at the grammatical, and as we exegete and pull from this particular passage. Threat number one, I believe, is legalism, which tries to intimidate us into thinking that salvation involves more than faith in Christ alone, that it involves following a list of man-made rules and regulations, religiosities, the smells and bells of religion. Threat number two is mysticism, which tries to bully us into thinking that salvation involves not just faith in Christ alone, but also adds to it the need for subjective, ecstatic experience, if you will, some ethereal, non-measurable, mystical experience in order to stay saved. Threat number three is what I call aestheticism, and which tries to intimidate us into thinking that salvation involves more than just faith in Christ alone, but self-inflicted suffering. Now, if the Apostle Paul were alive today, I do know what he would call them. He would call them religions of human achievement, or specifically from the text that we see here, mere shadows of the true substance which belongs only to Christ alone. These all have as their foundation external rules that do nothing to tame our sin. They just cage us. And there's a whole different world from being tamed versus being caged. There are religious systems that may even give faith in Christ a place in salvation, but not the only place, not the preeminence, not the first place. In other words, there are false doctrines, not only about which we should be warned, but against which we should stand. And that's what this text and this passage is all about. Would you stand with me, please? as we talk about standing against spiritual intimidation, you say, well, why do we stand when we read the Word of God? The Bible says give public attention to the reading of Scripture. There's something about a corporate body reading the Scripture. I love that. There may be men and women driving down the road listening to this message, and they're hearing you join me in the reading of the Word of God. I want you to think about the power of that. Secondly, we stand out of respect. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is here in our midst, as he promises. And he loves his word, and he wants to speak to us through his word as he moves in our midst. And I believe that if the Lord Jesus Christ were to walk in this room, we would either fall on our face, or we would stand out of respect. Amen? So let's read this together, fully cognizant of that reality, would you please? Read me with me. Therefore, verse 16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. 
If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandment and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, order of no value against fleshly indulgence. Spirit of God, it is our prayer that as we examine this passage, that you would speak to our hearts clearly about its application in our lives. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, oh, there's more of God's people that in here. And God's people said, amen. Please be seated. You know, last week we began looking at the importance of standing against those who intimidate, and in particular through legalism, the first threat. Notice again verse 16 and 17 when Paul says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And here's Paul's point, and I'm not going to re-preach last week's message. It's as simple as a click. You can download it and listen to it on podcast. He's saying don't be intimidated by the legalists. Don't let anyone act as your judge. Don't let anyone play Holy Spirit in your life. They're too short for the job. Instead, he calls us to lead a substantial life, a substantive life, a life that is guided by the indwelling Holy Spirit, that's not legislated by the external law, a bunch of rules that were man-made or denominationally imposed or church-mandated, transformed, if you will, on the inside. Why? Because the rule maker, I'm sorry, transformed on the outside because the rule maker lives inside. Do you remember our study of chapter 1 of Colossians and verse 27 when he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that brings us now to part two. And Paul's instruction for standing against those who intimidate through another threat that I'm calling mysticism. Again, verse 18 and 19, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement or the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If I were to throw out the word mystic, a whole bunch of images might come to your mind. Some might think of a guru in a saffron robe, standing on a mountaintop, contemplating the meaning of life and giving such sage advice as, you know, if you're going to really try to find true inner peace, you're going to have to give up chili. You know, things that are quaint, things that are desirable, things that, that men like to hear and people like to, to contemplate. Oh, that, that's profound. But that's not the kind of mystic that Paul is referring to here as one of the major threats to the Christian gospel. In general, the mystics that he's referring to are those that believe that spiritual reality can only be obtained through subjective experience. By tossing out the intellect, by cutting off the top of your, your head and, and responding to the extrasensory. 
He's also talking about one who places greater emphasis on feelings and intuitions rather than on the objective, the observable, and the external data. They are often anti-intellectual. They, they don't trust the mind. They don't trust human reasoning. Uh, they believe that truth comes internally and it wells out from inside and therefore they don't trust anything from the outside. In many cases, they, they call you to a subjective, sometimes an ecstatic, sometimes an extrasensory spiritual and religious experience that will take you to what they sometimes call the deeper plane. Paul is in jail. And he's warning. And on one hand, he's the apostle of grace. On the other hand, his, he is also a shepherd, and his fangs have come out, and he's protecting against the ravenous wolves who have come in sheep's clothing to distort the gospel. He's done it before in Galatians. He's done it before in Romans. He did it also in somewhat respect in 1 Thessalonians as we look at chapter 5 other places. This is not unusual for him. But he's not in a happy mood. And and on one hand, I have to say, as I said last time, nor am I. You know, when you are warning, when you're warning people against threats, you, do, you know, you don't come in like Tigger, bouncy, bouncy. You don't try to sugarcoat the reality that somebody has a spiritual grenade that they're going to toss in our midst. You warn. You protect, even with your own life, your own reputation, if you will, even your sacred honor. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. See, he's warning us about those Christian mystics who are claiming that to be a Christian, you have to measure your spirituality not by the objective word of God, but by something immeasurable, something internal, so that it became faith in Christ, not alone, but plus subjective experience. That's what true Christianity is all about. Then let me hasten to share my heart and what I'm not saying. See, when I talk about mysticism, I'm not talking about enthusiasm. Listen, the Christian life is certainly one that produces great enthusiasm and excitement. Even the word entheosmus, from which we get the English word enthusiasm, the word en plus theos means God in you. How many of you have Christ in you? Then let it show. No problem with enthusiasm. You look like you have Christ in you, God in you, of course. Secondly, I'm not putting down feelings. I acknowledge the feelings that come from the fruit of the Spirit in our lives you know, feelings like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Of course, I don't have a problem with that. I, I'm presently, I'm not suggesting a robotic, unfeeling, stoic life. I'm presently reading ten chapters of Psalms every day. How do you read ten chapters of Psalms and not respond? I'm not advocating stoicism. I'm also not opposed to being emotional. Listen, when God created us in the Imago Deo, in the image of God, He gave us intellect, He gave us will, but He also gave us emotion. Intellect to draw facts, will to make decisions, and emotions to respond accordingly. But the proper use of the emotions 
is throughout the Word of God. I have a nine-hour series on this if you'd like to listen to that. I'm also just trying to express to you that I'm worried. I think in a biblical form of worrying, if you will, I'm concerned. I'm concerned because the Bible warns warns us about this very thing. Listen, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Beloved, he's talking to us as believers now, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test it. How do you test anything empirically? How do you do that? You test a hypothesis by first having reality from which you can test. You have facts from which you can what? Then say, no, it doesn't match up to what we know. Test the spirits. Because not every spirit is from God. And I'm talking about the problem of placing our enthusiasm, our feelings, and our emotions above everything. Of basing our belief on intuition and experience and and not on the objective truth of the Word of God itself. But I'm also not against meditation and contemplation. I believe the Word of God needs not only to be memorized, but to be meditated on. I base that on Psalm chapter 1. I base that on Joshua 1.8. The, the word uh, simply means uh, to, it, it, mean, it means to not only bring it to the front of the mind, the Greek word metanoeo, but to ponder it, to contemplate it. I have no problem, but I'm not advocating contemplating on nothing. Even when you meditate on the glory of God in creation, you have therefore Something to draw from. Romans 1 tells us you see creation and you see the power of God. But I'm opposed to anybody who says they see more than that in the stars. You're not going to get a secret message from the constellations. You're not going to get the story of the gospel from the stars. You're not going to get anything more than the reality. And I'm a backyard astronomer, folks. I've studied this extensively. You're not going to get anything more than the incredible knowledge that God is all-powerful. And from that, to draw you from general revelation to special revelation of knowing more about that God who is all-powerful. So before we stand against mysticism in the church today, let me take some time to address what Paul was facing there in the first century. Because it was a rampant problem in the first century, and in particular in the church of Colossae. And the way the Greek text reads here, he's actually talking about one guy in the church. It's not that it was a problem in other places and with other people, but he singles out one man. And the truth is, it only takes one in a body. One bad apple to spoil the whole bunch, right? And so in verse 18, he talks about this one man who was delighting in self-abasement. You see it in verse 18? And I love the way the King James translates this. The King James calls it voluntary humility. Isn't that an interesting phrase? In other words, here was the guy that was volunteering to be humble, that he was connected more specially than others to God. That, that, that he had this secret of true spirituality as a gift from God to him alone. How humble is that? And secondly, Paul notices that he had delighted in the worship of the angels. See it in verse 18? Uh, in other words, this guy was looking to the spirit guides for some secret inner knowledge that, that he falsely claimed could not be found in Scripture. How intimidating is that? Uh, 
I, I've heard from an angel today. I can argue with that. And by the way, the angel told me to tell you, I can argue with that. And to make matters worse, he was claiming that he had reached a higher plane of worship uh, in, in some angelic heavenly form only possible through some ecstatic, emotionally charged experience. How do you argue with that? And then to attempt to bring credibility to those mystical experiences, look at verse 18 again. Paul says he's taking his stand on visions he has seen. And the word taking a stand is the Greek phrase for making a spectacle. He, he's parading himself. And, and don't miss this. He, he's saying, I am God's gift to mankind. I am a part of the Illuminati. I am the one of the spiritually elite. I, I have a more intimate connection with God. You need to listen to me. Now watch this. On what is he taking his stand? About what is he making a spectacle? Is it on his knowledge of the Word of God? I'm all for people that know this Word that, that you will be drawn to because of their hard work in the study of God's Word. Is that what he's basing it on? No. He's basing it on visions he has seen. I have to be honest here that the word visions is not in the text, but certainly applied by most every commentator you'll ever read and certainly is valuable even put in the version that we're using. The things that he has seen... This man's claiming support for his twisted views on the non-measurable, the difficult to refute, the stories of visions and apparitions and even out-of-body experiences. And Paul's not impressed, and he's also not intimidated, and he's not fooled. He refuses to be bullied by this super saint, and that's why in verse 18 he calls him for what he is. Watch this. He is inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And Paul's impassioned. He's in that jail, worried about his people in Colossae, and of course the church throughout the centuries. He wants to silence these kind of people and their silliness and their foolishness because of poisoning and threatening believers, not only in the church of Colossae, not only in the church in the first century, but even the church today. Well, that was then. Here we are now. But I'm here to tell you sadly that the mysticism of the first century is here today. It's just in a different package. There's nothing new under the sun. And I know that I could sit here and talk to you about all the glaring forms of modern non-Christian forms of mysticism. You'd all applaud if I talked about tarot cards and their evil and the ancient mystical art form still widely used today. You would boo that. Or, or even groups like Freemasonry with their mystical rites and secret ceremonies. Oh. And you might even applaud if I were to speak against the New Age movement and its aspiration to say that you need to draw from the God who lives inside of you and draw upon your own personal spirit guide, which I would call demons. But let judgment begin with the household of God. Because what the church did in the first century has been magnified a thousandfold in the church today. Do I need to put pictures and names up on the board of the modern day mystics who declare that they've been given the secrets to true spirituality that no one else has received? Do, do I need to play recordings of those preachers with their incredible claims that the Lord spoke directly to them in a vision 
Now let me step away and tell you, it's not that I don't believe that God can still speak that way. But in places where there is no Word of God, I recently heard, for example, what God is doing. There are miracles happening in Iraq and Iran today. Miracle after miracle. The church of Jesus Christ is spreading faster in Iran and Iraq than anywhere else in the world today. Praise be to God. And what's happening is, because they don't have a Bible, they're not having access to any spiritual training, God's revealing Himself. And even revealing Himself, just recently I heard a story of a man who said, I saw Jesus in a dream and he went and chased down a missionary and asked him, tell me about this one. And I wept as I heard the story. I don't deny that. But i got to tell you what then happens. The first thing that happens when they're revealed about Jesus is that they want then the Word of God. Because not enough. Oh, I'm not denying that. But I want to tell you what I'm reacting to is what I saw recently with a preacher who had a Bible in hand and never opened it once while he was preaching. But during his sermon, he turned around away from the audience and said, What, Lord? What's that? You want me to tell them what? Are you sure, Lord? I have a word from the Lord from you today. And I wanted to scream at my television set and say, What? Open your Bible and tell them, Thus saith the Lord so that they have an objective, revelatory standard by which they measure truth. Somebody say amen, or I'm going to keep preaching this. Shut up for the noise Shut up for the noise 